There's a lot of things in this old world That just do not make sense Like why there's so few believers on the firing line While so many others sit the fence But if you want to know where the word of God stands And believe it wants to use your feet and hands It's time to take your faith out of the seats And into the streets And come along with me If you'll only look, then you will see On WCN-TV Welcome to WCNTV.net live stream and WCNTV is Wisconsin Christian News. The great Rob Pugh, publisher of the Christian newspaper that you read, widely distributed in Wisconsin and around America, is the host of this program normally. He's certainly the founder and creator of it. He regrets not being able to sit in the seat, but he's uh, given me the uh, honor of filling in. And today is a really high honor for me uh, because we're going to have an opportunity to spend the next hour with one of the greatest, in my view, men of the West, the modern Western civilization. Because for many decades, this is a man who could truly say that he's seen so many conspiracies come true that he's he's trying to figure out how to make up new ones. Um, G. Edward Griffin wrote, literally wrote the book on one of the conspiracies that are the most toxic in our modern age because it has to do with how we exchange value, and that would be currency, the issue of money, the issue of currency and money. This is the man who told us the truth in his uh, very well-known book, uh, the of Jekyll Island. I'm going to bring him in at this point, Mr. Griffin. Thank you for being on WCN TV Live, and it's the of Jekyll Island. What's the? Give us the title of the book. It's the creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah. The creature from Jekyll Island. We have the author of that book, which I had the privilege of reading uh, a number of years ago. A friend of mine gave it to me, and boy, did it ever open my eyes as to uh, what we're dealing with today. And the subject of the book, uh, Mr. Griffin is set way back in the early 20th century, 1910-ish, 13, right around that time, right? That's right, yeah. It all started, well, it started in my storyline, at least in 1910, when these, uh, these the power-centered bankers all got together and decided they were going to have a secret meeting. So that was a good place to start, because when they have secrets, there's usually something to hide. And I got curious as to what it was they were trying to hide. I found out that's when I decided I had to tell the world about it. So, yeah, it started in 1910 with the planning for the Federal Reserve Act, 
which created the Federal Reserve System, which created all the economic crisis in the world today. Kind of and, we, sequence. and we are privileged today to have a studio audience uh, with us. I want to just give a couple quick instructions. You can raise your hand, and I've got a little laptop here. I'm looking down at it now. I apologize for that. But I think I can see if you want to make a point or ask a question of Mr. Griffin, you can raise your hand. Or I'm happy to have you interrupt. You can just say, hey, you know, or indicate in some way that you would like to interrupt. Uh, please feel free, uh, feel invited, feel welcomed to do that. It makes uh, the show all that much more interesting. And if you're just too annoying, then we'll turn you off. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about being too annoy uh, annoying. Worry about being too polite. We want to create a lively show here with uh, Mr. Griffin. We want to get all everything we can out of him in this next in this next hour and make it uh, entertaining and interesting to boot. So, uh, Mr. Griffin, when you wrote the book, uh, did you anticipate the sort of reaction that you got since since that time? I mean, it's like the you must have felt like the whole world came down on you. <laughs> well, let's start back. Did I anticipate any reaction? Actually, I didn't. Because I thought, even though I was on fire, there was a fire in my belly, I had to tell this story because I, I saw the story not as, the, as a, uh, a textbook on money and banking and how they create money and how credit ripples through the society and affects purchasing power and interest rates and all that. The technical side is how most of the books were written on this topic. But I saw it as a crime, kind of like a whodunit. I saw it as one of the greatest crimes of history against the uh, people of the world. And so I, I wanted to write the book as, in a story-type fashion while still including all the necessary details. But it, it became such a huge topic, Michael. I had no idea. I did not anticipate what I was getting into. I thought it might, I thought it might be a task that might take me, oh, six months or seven or maybe, oh, maybe even eight months. It took me seven years. <laughs> and, uh, and even then when I got to the point where the book ends on page 612 or something like that, it's a 600 page book. It's a monster. And I, I was only about halfway through my, my collection of data. And I thought, well, if I go all the way through this and bring it up to the current date, it's going to be a 1200 page book and nobody's going to read it. In fact, I didn't think anybody was going to read a 600 page book. So back to your point, I really didn't anticipate much reaction of any kind because I thought it was going to be something primarily that maybe a few hundred copies would go out. They might find their way into libraries and that someday in the future, somebody might discover it and say, oh, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. So I was totally amazed when it turned into a, a kind of a runaway. Right away, people started snapping it up. And I might say that I, I never advertised the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I had already learned from previous previous books that I had written that when you have an upstream point of view like I do, upstream means the truth as I see it, uh, going contrary to the you know the popular myths that we all live by, uh, it, the um, the big um, publishing houses don't want it. They won't promote it. The the uh, book reviewers will give it a bad review or preferably just ignore it completely. Uh, and nobody wants to handle the book. The bookstores won't take it because it's not produced by a big company and they don't think anybody's going to buy it. So I, I never down, went down that path again because it was just a waste of money to advertise a book of this kind. Uh, 
I thought. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden the sales were coming in and the, and the big distributors that were had turned me down previously <laughs> started to contact me and said, you know, we'd like to buy this book. Is, is it available? And the, yeah, of course it's available. <laughs> and, and I found out that the reason for that is that people were walking into the stores and asking for it. And I guess the inquiries finally went to the tipping point where the computers noticed it and that triggered the buying uh, uh, sequence and all of a sudden all the distributors were taking my book Amazon had it became became the number one bestseller in the category of business and economics and money and mm -hmm. so I the the answer to your question I did not anticipate that there would be any reaction and then when I found out that it was going very well that certainly was not anticipated Jumping ahead to the question that might come to anybody's mind, has anybody criticized it or attacked me for it? And the answer is uh, amazingly few. There was one professor, I've forgotten his name, that got some traction on the Internet <clears throat> because I thought when I wrote the book, by the way, oh, man, they're going to they're going to uh, uh, they're going to destroy me. They're going to rip me apart when all the academics, the professors and the, and the bankers, the, the real experts out there, when they. When they find out that this book is out there, they're going to pick it apart and find all of the flaws, all of my mistakes, all of my errors. And so when it came out, I thought, oh, man, it's just a matter of days. Enjoy your life while you have it, this sort of thing. Well, it yeah. never happened. It never happened. And except for one time I was on a radio program back on the East Coast, and there was a – I didn't know it, but they had invited a, a college professor from the local uh, community there to be in the studio with me. I, I didn't know it was going to be a debate, but it was okay. And so they, they asked me to make my case in a couple of minutes, and I did. And then they turned to the professor, and they said, Professor, what do you think about that? What's your response to what he just said? And I thought, okay, here it comes. This is the moment of my death. And he said, well, what he says is true. They sort of wrangled that. It's true, but we're living well, aren't we? And that was his critique of college professor of all of the points I had made. It's all true. It's a crime. Yeah, we're being robbed. Uh, people are suffering from it. There's a redistribution of the wealth. It's the cause. It's the, the way they pay for the wars. It's it's uh, it's legalized plunder. But we're living well, aren't we? So therefore, it's okay. And the reason I mention that is because that has been the only significant criticism or complaint against my book ever. And... Uh, I, I, I see your hand. I see your hand. I see your hand, Jack McCarthy. Uh, and uh, yeah, why don't why don't you come in here now, Mickey? For and ask your question. You may know this uh, member of the studio audience, Mr. Griffin. This is Jack McCarthy. He used to host a radio show in Northern Maine called Aroostook Watchman. Go ahead, Jack. Mm -hmm. Hello. That, obviously, that professor never read Frederick Bastiat's Legal Plunder, did he? Well, I don't think he read anything that was outside of the uh, establishment norm. Uh, if, if he, I mean, even I could find better arguments against my case than that. That's a, that's a common disease, not reading outside the norm. Yes. So I'll, I'll uh, mute myself. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Mr. Griffin, so what we're becoming acquainted with now is this uh, money that just gets deposited into our paychecks. And you mentioned, you, you passed by real quickly in your comments there about the debate and the release of the book, about how uh, the trajectory of, 
of this whole economy with respect to currency. Tell us what's going on with this. I mean, I think many of us are, look, we're perplexed by it. We see the debt approaching $30 trillion. We're not economists. Um, and then we start seeing the government, the federal government, uh, direct depositing, you know, fairly significant when you consider that America consists, you know, is made up of 300 million people, um, chunks of change, you know, multiple times over the past year, what there's 700 bucks or a I've forgotten now, 22,000 bucks, 600 bucks, whatever. And, and it sh suddenly shows up. And what is going on? I think a lot of people my age are, we're just, it's just part of this chaotic noise that we're living into now when it comes to the economy. And I feel like your book really helped me, uh, it really helped me put my finger on to, 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 to a great extent, the problem here. And, and that is that what we're living through is a crime and it's not a new crime. This, this is a crime whose foundation goes back to the beginning of the 20th century at the least. At the least, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, there are many ways to, to approach that question, uh, Michael. And um, I'm trying to think of some kind of an analogy to make it more simple. Okay, here's one. Let me give this a try. I mean, I think everybody is familiar with a game called Monopoly. And for those that have never played it, it used to be very popular when, when I was a boy. Everybody played Monopoly. We set up the card table in the backyard underneath the tree and get the lemonade out there. And we could spend two or three hours on one game of Monopoly. The idea of the game, of course, is to... to end up at the end owning all of the property on the board and everybody had to pay you rent and uh, fees of various kinds and of course you had you would then be the monopolist and uh, everybody else right. would be serving you so it was kind of an exciting game yeah i want to i want to own the world let's play this game so you're going to win it and uh, so in the game of monopoly everybody starts off with a certain amount of money as the rules are that you get I've forgotten what it is, but you get a whole stack of $1 bills and $5 bills, $10, $20 bills, and I guess a couple of hundred, something like that. And they call it monopoly money. In later years, we used to call it funny money because it's not real money, but you're playing the game with it as though it were. And um, so then somebody gets, let's say, $1,000 to start the game. So it's a level playing field at the beginning. That you, your men move around the board and you get all these cards and telling you you can you can buy something or sell something whatever and you make deals and you and uh, so as the game progresses uh, some people do a lot better than others and finally there's one person that's got all the dough. Mm -hmm. um, now imagine in that game that the banker who in the rules of the game is not in the game he's he's sort of this disembodied god figure that distributes the money to them in the beginning. And there's some transactions that go through the bank, as I recall, but the banker is not a player in the game. He's the guy that just provides the money in the beginning. Now, if you imagine in that game that the banker, in this case, the Federal Reserve System, who's providing the money, creates the money and distributes it among all the players, meaning us, supposing the banker is in the game, now, all of a sudden, you can see that this is not going to go well for everybody else because the banker is the source of the money. If he runs out of money, he just sort of creates more of it, and then he's in the game again. So he cannot really make a mistake. Or if he does make a mistake, it doesn't make any difference because he's got more money that comes just at the whim of his, of his logic. He says, I need some more money. So he gets it, whereas the rest of us have to go earn it. 
<laughs> so mm -hmm. now we see how this starts out. That's the world, the economic world in which we live today. The banker, in this case, the Federal Reserve System, which is really a partner with the federal government. It's really the same thing. It's two institutions, but when they created the Federal Reserve Act, they created a cartel and uh, they brought the federal government into the cartel. So it's really, when you analyze it, it's a single institution, a marriage between the banking fraternity and the political fraternity. So they're, they're a player in the game and uh, they're providing money to everybody. So you can imagine we're playing this game of monopoly now and all of a sudden the banker who is one of our competitors in the game is giving us the money. Oh, well, isn't this nice? Well, now we don't care if he's a competitor because he's giving us this money. And isn't this good? We don't have to worry about anything. And we love our competitor until the day comes when our competitor starts to tell us what to do, mm -hmm. how to think, where to live, uh, you know, how, how to live, what to eat, <laughs> uh, who we can employ, who we cannot employ. How are we going to, what are we going to select for our health care? Are we going to uh, accept vaccinations or are we going to be forced? All of a sudden this, this, uh, this banker, the source of the money is a competitor, but he's got all the money. And if he doesn't like us, he cuts off our money. And we're by this time used to getting money from him. It comes in every week or every month. Oh, we love him. But if he doesn't like us, all of a sudden we don't get it anymore. And now uh oh, we, what we see now is that this imaginary game, we're trapped. The banker really wins the game before we even know it. The minute we start to let him issue money, and we have to accept it by law and all of that sort of thing. We cannot win this game. He is going to wind up owning everything. So I think maybe that's not a good analogy, but it's good enough for our purposes. Right now, we're seeing the end game of the monopoly game where people are just so deliriously happy that, oh, my gosh, the government is giving us money now. We don't even have to work for it. We thought we were so worried because, oh, well, how are we going to put food on the table? Oh, well, the government stepped in. He's going to pay our rent. And in the process, he'll take our property. We've already been told that they'll own everything, but that won't make any difference. You'll be happy, they say, because we'll give you the apartment or the house, the house to live in. You'll be happy, but you won't own anything. Mr. Yeah. Griffin, I think, Mr. Griffin, I think a lot of people don't believe that that's true, even though it is in writing from the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, what the point you just made about them, uh, about us not owning any property. That, but just confirm for our audience right now that indeed that is true. That that's where well, they're headed, right? Well, yeah, I can confirm that. And uh, it's, it's not hard to discover if anybody finds that hard to believe. Just go on the Internet. Even the Internet, which is completely scrubbed of any contrary information, they probably wouldn't present the information in the same vocabulary that I am using. But it's there. But when they explain it, they're going to say, tell you how wonderful it is. But if you read between the lines and take out the adjectives, whether it's good or bad, and you see what they're talking about. They're, they make no bones about it. These people are what are proper, should be properly called collectivists. They believe in the ideology of collectivism. And that's the ideology behind communism, fascism, Nazism, socialism, all of the isms that we have fought wars against in, in many cases. And then we say, well, that's not America. But you know, we've adopted all of those, those principles. We, we really are a collectivist nation ever since ever but, since World War Two, for sure. They're in the mop up operation uh, of wiping out the free market. Is, is that, yes, and is, that's is, correct. They don't want right. the free market. They don't want the, the word free attached to anything unless it's free money, which is really like a hook 
for the fish, you know, it's bait for the fish. But no, they don't want the free market. Uh, they don't uh, want the... And, uh, and isn't it interesting too, Mr. Griffin, that it's not just the free market in the economic sense that they have decided to destroy. They realized, I think, with the populist rising led by Trump, that if they didn't figure out a way to muzzle, in other words, take away our freedom to speak with our mouth what we know to be true, then they were going to lose. And that's why they came up with that mask, the muzzle. Because the only way that mask makes any sense if, is if you mask people who are sick. And they figured out a way, they being these global forces, these economic forces, these, and it's beyond the, the economy, right? I mean, this is what, what these folks are going after is, is a matter of our humanity, a matter of our capacity to be free, reasoning, human people living on planet earth um they figured out a way to muzzle everybody instead of just the sick people and and, th and they also at the same time threw in taking away hugs you know they this six foot distancing uh, tactic that they threw in so they're really all in they have been for over a year now they're all in in this mop-up operation as you describe it uh of destroying what we Americans have taken for granted up until now, which is our liberty. Because you know, America, is, that's a, if, if America stands for anything in the world, it's this idea of liberty. And they are right now in the process of destroying that, aren't they? I'm not exaggerating, am I? No, I think you're probably understating the case a little bit, Michael, because uh, the way you, you have described it is accurate i think uh in every way except that it's been going on for a long time they've been in the mm. in their minds uh, uh, people speak about the new world order as though it's some kind of a conspiracy theory but actually this is their phrase and they use it a lot they use it more right. than they they the proponents of the new world order use that phrase in their international meetings all the time and in their books and their conferences and uh and the only problem is that the average person doesn't read those books or go to those conferences. So, so, they, so they, so they, re they, they really mean it when they say, Oh, the great reset, the new normal means there's not going to be any normal that we're used to. The new normal means there's no normal that we're used to. And they, and well, they I, I think, I think the word normal and new normal is kind of a, a, a distraction. It's really not what, what's normal. There's nothing that's normal. If you want to get really tuned about it, depends on what part of the world you're in or, or what part of uh, the century you're in. The normal is, is sort of an abstract idea, but it's a distraction away from the idea that they want to take our property. Now we're back to the, mm. where we departed. So the point. underlying philosophy between all variants of collectivism is that individuals must not own property. It's a crime. It's a sin. It's immoral that you or I or somebody should have more than someone else. You see? And so property allows that to happen. And so in order to make sure that nobody has more than anyone else, you have to deny the ownership of property. And so that's in all aspects of um, of collectivism. And so now, what is it? So you started by asking, is that real? Yes, it's very real because the communists for forbade property. The Nazis allowed property only to the ruling elite. I mean, they were in the process of confiscating property. You see, they're, okay, I'm, I'm rambling too much. Right now, one of the problems that these people have is taking property from Americans who own it. 
And uh, the Constitution, even though it's just a, a bare tatter of what it was, it's a shred, they're shredding it. It still, it makes it very hard for the politicians and these theoreticians to say they're going to come and take your property from you. And so they, long ago, I mean, by long ago, at least three decades ago, started another way of taking your property that you didn't even know that they were doing it. And that is called taxation and regulation and rules. And, oh, if you didn't do this, you didn't uh, obey that uh, environmental law, uh, we're going to fine you $20,000 per day until you fix it and so forth, all in the name of environmental something or other. You know, they always have a, an excuse to defend you. They, this is for your own good. But the point is they start making the ownership of property so expensive that people can no longer afford it. And so they have to sell it. Nobody can sell it. They don't pay the taxes. The state comes in and takes the property and they got your property without confiscating it. They just they just made it too expensive for you to get to own it. So this is another way of implementing the Marxist and the and the Nazi fascist idea of you cannot own property. And so I want to say this again. The reason they don't want you to own property is because if somebody has property, they have the means of independent existence. If you don't have property, then that means you, you don't have food. You don't have the means to produce food. You can't own a farm or have a vegetable patch or anything like that. You don't own your water, so you can't drink water. And you can't last very long without owning some water. And if you mm-hmm. have to depend uh, on, and of course, your, your shelter and so forth, your home. If you have to depend on the state for your food, your water, your shelter, your health care, everything, you are going to do what you are told to do. And that is the reason behind this war on property. This is an immense battle. Jack McCarthy, you've had your hand up for a little while. Go ahead. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, aren't these all the results of the, the uh, our ignorance of and the violations of Article 1, Section 10 of the United States Constitution? Well, I, I would say uh, it's yes, uh, but there's more to it than that, I, I think, uh, Jack, because even though Americans are not ignorant of a certain uh, principle, and they don't really know where it is in the Constitution and never even knew it was in there. Uh, the real problem is that these guys that I'm calling collectivists have moved into positions of political authority and power, and they don't care whether you know about it or not. All of a sudden, Americans are waking up and say, well, my gosh, they're taking our liberties from us, and they know they're doing it but they don't know what to do about it because all the guns are in the hands of the people who are taking it away. And this happened slowly. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over a couple of... But since Article 1, Section 10 says no state shall make anything but gold or silver coin tender in payment of debt, then each time the state collects or pays out anything rather than in, in Federal Reserve notes, they're in violation of federal law. So why yeah. do we do that? Why do we allow that? Well, because we don't have, right now, we don't have the ability to stop them. They look at us and they laugh and they say, well, yeah, of course it's illegal. We're doing it anyway. What are you going to do about it? This is their attitude. Well, You're not going to do anything about just, it. You're just a voter and we control the votes. We rig the votes. So well, you can talk about it all you want to. We got the guns. This is it. Well, what about the disclaimer? What about the disclaimer on the Federal Reserve notes? This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private and is redeemable in lawful money at any Federal Reserve Bank of the United States Treasury. Why don't we use the unlawful money uh, 
disclaimer that they printed right on the notes. Well, Jack, it's the same reason because we don't have the power to do it. I mean, you and I can't do it. And it's like being an inmate in a prison. We can mumble and grumble about the food all we want to. This food is lousy. Why don't we get the better food, you know? But the warden and but the guards have, have got the... No, you can starve. That's true. That's right. Why don't, and... why don't I have to pay sales tax? Why don't I just refuse to pay sales tax? Because the store, acting as an agent for the state, has no ability to collect silver as tender and payment of debt. But it does have ability. It has no right to do so, but it has the ability to do so. That's my point. And I'm not arguing against you, Jack. Power versus authority. Yeah, power versus authority. It's a very real concept. And and constitutionalists tend to forget that. uh, It kind of reminds me of my good friend, Dr. John Richardson, some years ago, decided he was going to treat cancer patients and save lives, even though he was using an unapproved um, treatment for cancer. It was unapproved. It was illegal because it, it hadn't been approved by the FDA. And he said, I don't care whether it's approved or not. It's saving lives. And they took his license from him. And he used to walk before that happened. He used to hold his little copy of the Constitution up. He said, they can't do with these things because I'm protected by the Constitution. Wham, they did it to him. It's a piece of paper until the American people are willing to get out there and, and fight to preserve it. It's just a piece of paper. But when the, once the spirit of freedom comes to the point that there are enough people to defend that piece of paper and the rules and regulations on it, it's just we're not going to be able to stop it. And this is a harsh position because people don't want to believe that. They think if we can just figure out the rules, it's kind of like a jailhouse attorney, you know? Hold on, Jack. Hold on, Jack. Mr. Griffin, we're on the Wisconsin Christian News television live stream with the great G. Edward Griffin. And we have reached the bottom of the hour. We're halfway through the show and we're going to play two minutes of ads. And you need to stay tuned because when we come back from the break, we're going to be talking with Mr. Griffin about what he's doing today to help us follow the Constitution, to help us stand up and fight against this evil force and preserve our Western traditions and our civilization for our children and our grandchildren. You're not going to want to miss this, folks. So stay tuned for the ad. Support the people who support this live stream. And we'll be right back. Have you been looking for a trusted long-term storable food company? We have a solution for you. Simply Clean Foods is dedicated to providing the best quality food you can buy next to fresh from a farmer's market. Our line of resealable fruits, vegetables, and meats are suitable for everyday use, and you won't have to worry about throwing away valuable groceries ever again. Our food is completely GMO-free, and our stringent quality controls plus testing for heavy metals makes us unique in the storable foods market. Simply Clean Foods' primary focus is to bring clean food to people all around the world and change the way we look at freeze-dried food in our daily cooking. When you purchase from simplycleanfoods.net, not only will you be receiving high-quality food, but you will also be supporting veterans in need across the country and those who are affected by natural disasters. Right now, Amazon Prime members will receive fast two-day shipping. Go to simplycleanfoods.net. That's simplycleanfoods.net. But do it today. At the McClario Firm, it all starts with family. We are here to serve you and your family online or in person. Call today for a free consultation. The McClario Firm, your law firm for life. Start. 
Pornography is a destructive force. It destroys individuals, families, and fuels the out-of-control demand for sex trafficking. 45% of Christian families say porn is a problem in their home, but why aren't churches and public schools talking about this? Fear. People who view porn think they're the only one. It's a lie. Statistically, more people view porn than who do not and struggle in silence. www.lynnfrederick.com You can find the book I wrote about my own battle with porn and the presentations that I do for churches and public schools. lynnfrederick.com Tired of bad news? Do the teenagers in your life need a break from social media and mind-numbing entertainment? Wouldn't it be great to inspire them to connect with God and others and to live outside their phones? The Off the Itinerary series by M. Liz Boyle does just that, and reviewers love the blend of adventure and Christian themes. Readers enjoy the action-packed stories and relatable characters. Go to mlizboyle.com for discussion guides and purchase links. You're tuned in to Wisconsin Christian News television live stream, WCNTV.net. Rob Pugh was thrown off Vimeo a number of years ago. He was one of the early victims of cancel culture. He had invested heavily in putting hours and hours and hours worth of inspirational and educational videos on Vimeo. And of course, because he included the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Vimeo didn't have the stomach to continue to host that content. So they all of a sudden, just like a light switch, said, you're all done, buddy, and they deleted everything on his channel. So he learned his lesson the hard way, and now he has created his own platform called WCNTV.net. And Rob is a humble and generous publisher, and new to video publishing. He's been doing this for about a year, but he has a real heart to help others. And so there's a gentleman named Dennis Jameson who has the, uh, help me with this, Jared, the Citizen Sentinel, I believe it's called. And oh, go ahead. Citizen Voice, and they've started a little bit of a video outreach. And the reason this platform is so important and platforms like it is because it can't be turned off by big tech. These platforms like WCNTV.net are being built outside the system, the big tech system. So big tech has no control over this. So you want to not only patronize, patronize uh, WCNTV.net and other uh, platforms like it, but you're going to want to let your friends know about it and help them learn how to use it. All these platforms are free, folks. The internet's being rebuilt from the bottom up now. It's been built. It was invented from the top down. It's being reinvented right now from the bottom up by the people. And it's very exciting. And we are going to win this World War III that we're talking with G. Edward Griffin about, who has forgotten more than most of us will ever learn about this World War III that was kicked off in earnest. Thank God it's still only a political war, Mr. Griffin. And it's not a kinetic war, but it could easily transition from a political war to a kinetic war if we don't step up and defend our constitutional rights and win this political war. You're doing everything in your power, thank you, uh, to help by creating something uh, that you uh, uh, built based on the Matrix movie idea, the red pill, blue pill that uh, Morpheus held out for um, Neo in that fa very famous movie the Red Pill, and tell us about the Red Pill Expo, the Red Pill University, where the idea came from, uh, what you're doing, and how it's going. Well, thanks for that opening, Michael. Before I do that, I would like to just back up for a moment to something you said about the uh, kinetic war and, um, and, and the political war. It's true. What you said is true, but there's something else going on here 
ever since I'm going to say the French Revolution with the idea that all of a sudden in history, the people had or were supposed to have a voice in their own rule. Prior to that time in history, it was pretty well accepted and not, not many even people, not many people even conceptualized that it could be any other way. And that is that there would be conquerors, people with superior armies would come in, conquer your land, and then they would be the new kings or emperors. And, and you just got used to it and hoped that he would be a benevolent uh, king. And but with the start of the French Revolution and then the American Revolution, which really put the cherry on the ice cream, um, it was the idea that we, the people now, should be the source of our own rule, self-rule. It was a, a startling idea, and it caught on like wildfire and spread around the world. And immediately, those the old rulers realized that this was this idea could not be stopped. So they wisely, like they usually do, get at the head of the, of the parade, and they become the they became the advocates of the new idea, but they wanted to control it in such a way that it wouldn't really change anything. Sort of what they did with the Federal Reserve Act, of which I know a little bit about. The bankers decided that uh, the American people wanted banking reform. They didn't like the total control that the the powerful banks had over the economy, and they demanded Congress to come up with some legislation to control these big bad banks. And so the bankers decided, okay, this is the way it is. We will take up that cry. We will call for reform, and we will write. We will write the document that's going to reform banking, the Federal Reserve Act. And that's why the secret meeting took place on Jekyll Island. It's because the bankers went there and drafted the legislation that was to supposedly to control themselves. And they didn't want anybody to know that they were writing the, the legislation. That was the whole idea of calling this thing the creature from Jekyll Island. That was the secret. And no, I, I mention it because it's the same secret that has been used over and over against the free people of the world. The idea that the, the people, we the people, through something called democracy, will be we will become masters of our own political destiny. The rulers of the world decided, okay, we'll get at the head of that parade and we'll control it so that nothing will really change, but people will think that something changed. And so we'll have political parties and people can vote for one party or the other. And But behind the scenes, both parties are uh, really controlled by us. So it makes no difference. Let them fight it out. Have there be blood all over the battlefield. But no matter who wins, nothing will really change. But the people will be passive because they'll say, well, we brought it on ourselves. We made a bad choice again. And they bounce back and forth. Now, that's just one example. I could go on and on and on. The idea of deceptive reform is, is everywhere. And the secret to all of that is that there's a new kind of warfare. It's no longer just military warfare. Uh, and uh, it's it's um, not not just political warfare, because by political warfare, we're talking about like politics. Right. Now, who are you going to vote for? What political party? What laws are you going to write? Even though they, they won't be enforced, let's make it sound good. We'll figure out a way that we won't have to enforce them that way. That's the political war. It's not there anymore because the political war is a product of another type of warfare, which d developed at the, about the time of the American Revolution and thereafter, and it's psychological warfare, it's mental warfare, it's opinion molding, it's control of the media, 
It's control of ideas. And that's yeah. the war we're really in. And I don't think I have to explain that very far for your audience. They can see that because right now it's they're they're uh, they're they're canceling everybody who's got a point of view that they don't want on the internet. They're they're censoring everybody. They're making laws against certain types of ideas and all of it because they know that if these ideas, the psychology of liberty, ever gets out, they're through. And so the warfare is psychological and for the, for the minds and loyalties of men. Now, Mr. Griffin, I, I think they they figured out first the, the the folks who you're talking about who are waging this psychological war. They they were early to figuring out that the uh, internet and these devices, if they could be uh, controlled and weaponized into surveillance uh, uh, devices, if the technology and the infrastructure of the internet could be uh, weaponized into something that would uh, co continuously track people and would uh that, that that they would that they added a potentially uh unassailable weapon to their arse to their psychological warfare arsenal and i think that what we're going living through right now is an attempt on their part to uh see to seal the deal with the internet and with this technology to make it into a surveillance instrument and they're using all of their powers to persuade us to manipulate us to accept that to accept that these devices are, are not going to be guarantors of our privacy and of our liberty and of our freedom, but that they're, but, but in fact, they're going to be guarantors of safety uh, from terrorists and from any sort of harm that might come our way, in, including mm -hmm. harm from unseen viruses. They're yes. harnessing mm -hmm. the internet and these, and this, this new technology and they're persuading, trying to persuade us, but I think they're going to lose Mr. Griffith. I think well, you're, gonna you're absolutely right in, in their strategies, and it's so obvious. Uh, it became obvious the day I, I read in the newspaper that YouTube, this will go back some years, YouTube was sold. I guess it was started by some private entrepreneurs, and yeah. I always thought it was kind of silly, you know, the videos weren't very good, and it wasn't much option, but somebody saw ahead, and I read in the newspaper that YouTube was sold to some consortium for some astronomical amount of money. It was a billion dollars an hour. I don't know. This is not worth that kind of money. And then I thought, aha, if you're just thinking in terms of economic value, well, it turns out to probably have been worth that amount of money now, but it, economic value was not how it was sold. It was sold because of its psychological value. And mm -hmm. so that was, and yeah, one more, one more control over the thinking processes and the attitudes of the American people, just to, like control over the public education system is control yeah. over the thinking processes of humans as they are developed and their minds and, and you, ideas are formed. And you are on the front lines of this war on the internet with Red Pill Expo and Red Pill University, which are, yes. uh, which are very helpful, useful websites, you know, harnessing the power of this tech technology, not to surveil people, not to violate their privacy, but to educate them as to how they can guarantee their privacy and how they can move forward as human persons, right? Exactly, Michael. That's the reason I wanted to back up on this before we came to Red Pill Expo and Red Pill University, because you nailed it. That's exactly why we're doing this. It's because if we don't uh, uncontrol and, and open up people's minds to the complete uh, uh, milieu, all the options of ideas. And we're not trying to push any, oh yeah, we're advocating an idea, of course, but we would never dream of censoring an opposing idea. We'd love to get in and debate on it, 
We'd love to expose it, but we're not going to censor it. The only reason you want to censor something is because you don't think you can win without in, a, in an open debate or an even fight. You know, it's not these only people that censor ideas are the ones that know that they will lose if the opposing idea is presented fairly. It's just so, amazing. Uh, it's amazing to me, Mr. Griffin, that that that, that particular uh, pro profoundly evil idea of, of uh, cancel culture and censorship has gained so much power to the point where. Uh, it appears that a majority of us are willing to think in terms of race. I, I was raised thinking that the racial issue in the United States of America, America had been and was indeed a difficult one, but that for the most part, uh, the aspects of it that were most onerous um, had been sort of wrestled to the ground with Martin Luther King Jr. and all of that. And, and that we had entered a period where uh, there was really positive change and it was kind of fading into the background. But then all of a sudden, last March, we're burning down the cities, our cities over race. And well, that was engineered, that whole idea of the conflict. Right. And uh, I think uh, you mentioned it earlier, or someone mentioned the fact that there was conflict being generated. And, and that's true. That's, that's the rules of warfare is to divide and conquer. It's as old as, uh, as, old as the written word. Divide and, and conquer. Well, think and about red, it. And, yeah. and your Red Pill University and Red Pill Expo, I want to make sure we get into that. Um, mm -hmm. And we're, our, the clock is running away from us. Um, so Jared's got the website up. Why don't you show mm -hmm. us what's going on there? What, what sort of uh, well, okay. Yeah, the Red Pill University. Yeah, yeah, the Red Pill University is an event. It's a live event. It's, it's. Uh, we have a live stream, of course, because we know that most people cannot make it to where our events are. And so we have a very uh, vigorous live stream. You can watch everything from the uh, the comfort of your home, just like you're in the front seat. But the real value, I think, of an event like this is to bring people together physically. That's why they want us locked up in our homes because you can't. They they don't want us forming uh, uh, friendships and and forming uh, coalitions to yeah, fight this back. This virtual this virtual solution to everything is not going to work. Is it? They're making us into robots. Go ahead. Well, yeah, because ahead. as long as we're dependent on what comes to us over our computer screens and our smartphones, they have complete control over that. And so they control us. They love it. They just love the, us to think that, oh, we're on the Internet now. We can talk to each other. Now we're, we're really enjoying freedom. Well, we, we're given the illusion of that for short periods of time. But people will see that that's not another year or two. And it, it'll be so obvious. It'll be like uh, watching the movie uh, uh, 1984. You know, Big Brother up on the screen. That's all you get to see is Big Brother. <laughs> anyway, I won't, I won't do it. I won't do it, Mr. Griffin. Our, in Maine, where I live, or, uh, the Maine legislature is shut down. It hasn't met for a year. They've moved out of the state house. They're renting the civic center. They hold mm -hmm. public hearings on Zoom. I won't do it. I'll. I, I've submitted uh, written testimony, but I'm not going to sit on a Zoom on a screen in my house in my pajamas. It's demeaning to the whole process. Yeah. We got to. We got to meet with people. We got to hug people. We got to be human beings. There you have it. That's why Red Pill Expo has always been, and I hope always can be, will be, uh, a live deal. So this, we've had them in the great places. Last year, by the way, or the last event in October was on Jekyll Island itself, you know, the scene of the crime. And it was a great event. We had a packed house and great, well, you see in a moment, great presenters. These are the experts in their field usually men and women who have taken the red pill themselves and have discovered what it's all about. And they're here to tell us all about it. 
And uh, but the, I, back to your point, it's it's a place where people come together and network together and find strength in numbers and go back to their communities and form what we call campuses, little boots on the ground groups in every county, every city, every place, like our opponents do. That's how they operate. You know, we can learn from them in this in this way. So this is a very much hands-on, face-to-face type of um, situation here. So anyway, okay, what it is? Okay, uh, it's based on the meme. The red pill. Take the red pill, friend. Wake up, you know, break out of the illusions and see reality the way it really is. It comes from the movie called The Matrix. And I think most people have seen that. I won't take time to explain it. Just look it up if you have any doubts about it. But the theme is take the red pill and something will happen to you and all of your illusions will go away and you can see life the way it really is. So we have all of these speakers and we're still adding to them, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's a two day packed uh, wall-to-wall dynamite uh, red pill dispensary. And we're not just talking about COVID or any one theme. This is a potpourri of different themes. We're talking about education. Uh, We're talking talking about economics. Uh, We're talking about propaganda. Uh, We're talking about health issues. Of course, you you can't have an event like this without talking about the illusions being fostered on us in the name of protecting us against a, a virus that they've never seen, never tested, never isolated. It's all theoretical. And if you talk about a need for a red pill, that's it. So um, that's about it. If people want to find the truth about what's really going on in the world and to meet with others of like mind and realize that we're not alone. In fact, those of us who are truth seekers are by far still in the majority. And if we just if we just realized that fact and got together and formed into coalitions and got these boots on the ground campuses going in our local communities, we could win this thing. But we cannot do it unless we have boots on the ground. You build a movement from the bottom up, not from the top down. And this is how we start. We're talking with G. Edward Griffin. And we have a live studio audience with us. Very exciting. And Jack wants to ask another question or make a point. Go ahead, Jack. Uh, thanks, thanks for all that, G. Edward. That was excellent. Um, what do you have for action solutions to put our state and federal governments back in their constitutional box? Great question, Jack. It's very simple. We have a slogan. It's called, Why Fight City Hall When You Can Be City Hall? We've come to the point where we're sick and tired of standing outside City Hall or whatever that happens to represent in the form of government. We're outside looking in through the windows. The doors are locked. We can't get in. We're looking through the windows. Oh, you in there who have power, won't you please uh, listen to us? We have a petition here. See, we signed our names on a petition. Won't you please read our petition and follow the Constitution and follow the laws? Won't you please do what is right? And they laugh at us. We decided it's time for us to be inside City Hall. It can be done. It's amazingly easy. And that's one of the, the purposes of our campuses at, uh, at uh, Red Pill University and Red Pill Expo, because one of the primary jobs of the campus is to create political support for candidates at the local level, for the school board, for the county board of supervisors, for sheriff, you know, and, you know, all of these important positions. And it can be done uh, our first campus has already done it. <laughs> I was part of it. We were experimenting. It was amazingly simple, actually. And it's, our enemy has had an easy time doing this because most people say, oh, it's too complicated. I don't like politics. Politics is uh, dirty, you know. Of course it's dirty because all the good, clean people stay out of it. That's why it's dirty. And so, anyway, 
that's how you do it. First of all, you have to control the levers of influence and power in a community. As long as you're outside looking in through the window, it cannot be done. So our first goal is to get people of, of, of conscience and right principles into city hall, into positions of political authority. And I think uh, Donald Trump, in a way, is an example of that. He's a little bit of a, an outside example because of his wealth and his, the fact that he came to politics as a reality star, so he had an immense name ID. Um, but he brought a message, a populist message, that, was, that everybody thought would lose at, at the time when he became president. And he proved to the world that his confrontational uh, step-up-to-the-plate, get-in-their-face style, which politics had kind of, especially Republican politics, had sort of poo-pooed for forever during my lifetime. He proved that Republicans can get out there, talk straight, be straight in terms of what they think, think, you know, speak their mind and go after the enemy and win. He proved that you can win, admittedly, with a lot of wealth and a lot of name ID. But still, even with that, look what he... Uh, look what he faced for a headwind while he was president. And he still managed to get a lot done. I think, what do you think, Mr. Griffin? Do you think that times have changed to the point where a uh, principled uh, uh, person of goodwill in the United States of America uh, in an imbalanced uh, contest can step up and do something good uh, politically, even though they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're not part of this inner circle of power network. Absolutely, yes. But the, the danger there is something I mentioned earlier, is that we have to be realistic that our enemies know a lot about what's going on before we even wake up to it, because largely they've created it. You mentioned a moment ago that we, I think you said, we didn't think Mr. Trump could win. I would disagree with that. I think it was well known that somebody was going to win on that platform. And in fact, the evidence is quite clear that all of the slogans in the Trump campaign, you know, make America great again, in particular, were done by a public relations firm long before the candidates were selected. Mm -hmm. The slogans, the ideas, the words were all carefully worked out. And they were just deciding, okay, who's going to be our candidate to take this message to the American people? Because they knew, they knew that the American people were hungry for that message. It was just a question of finding somebody who could say the words. That's all it took. Mr. Trump was chosen for that. Mm. This is harsh. This is harsh. We don't want to hear this. But remember, this is our enemy's favorite weapon to get in front of the parade. Well, I'm experiencing it up close and personal myself. I'm a candidate for governor in Maine. Just learned today that the national, and Maine is, is not a big state, a million people and fairly insignificant in the whole scheme of things. But the national party has already acted to uh, deep six my campaign. And the vote mm -hmm. isn't until June mm -hmm. of 2022. And it's same old, same old. They do not mm -hmm. want a man like me. <clears throat> talking about the vaccine passport, talking about COVID, talking about the mask, talking about the distancing, talking about the truth the way you do, Mr. Griffin, they do not want it anywhere near power. They're, well, I would say they're, this, they're, Mike. They're, they're, they're more afraid, it seems to me, than they've ever been. I would say this. If I were 
on their grand council. When I say there, I mean the opposition, the collectivists who want to wrap the whole thing up and control the world. If I were on that grand council and they said, what would you do uh, in Maine? I'd say, well, look, find somebody, uh, study what this guy, uh, Michael Heath is saying. The public, public seems to be responding to that. Find somebody that can internalize that and, and give those same words, but he's our man. Put him up for well, they office. They, they found him. His name's Paul LePage. He was the okay. governor for eight. He was the governor for eight years. He mm -hmm. ran with a uh, rhetor rhetorical style similar to mine his first time. Spent mm -hmm. eight years in governor, and now they own him. And now all he's going to do is talk about uh, economics. Well, they may have owned him before he ran. That's the, my point. You see, they may. This is, they may this have. Is, this is the thing that Americans don't want to face: is that we're up against a very shrewd enemy. And so we have to be very careful just because somebody says the right things. That does not mean that we can trust them. Well, we've got one minute left. We're talking to G. Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, which many have read. If you have not read it and you want to try to pierce the darkness, the chaotic darkness that surrounds us right now, then I couldn't recommend any book more highly than that one as a good place to start if you want to think about currency and the exchange of value in the West. And that's a big part of what we're dealing with here because all this money that's all of a sudden appearing in your checkbook and this uh, almost $30 trillion of, of debt in America and the immense global debt, is uh, that's all going to come home to roost. And we've been talking with Mr. G. Edward Griffin for the past hour. This program is archived at WCNTV.net. Make sure you share the link with all of your friends and red pill them and tell them to get involved with G. Edward Griffin's Red Pill University, Red Pill Expo, and become part of the solution here. If you don't, then your children and grandchildren, it's likely that they will live as slaves without property. We are going to have to fight if we're going to save what we care about in the United States of America. Uh, G. Edward Griffin, thank you for being on WCN TV live stream. Well, thanks for inviting me, Michael, and I wish you the best of luck in the world. You don't need so much luck. You just, just need to keep doing it, and uh, the virtue of the truth will carry you over the finish line for sure. Thanks for inviting and th me. And thank you, audience, and thank you, uh, studio audience, and thank you, viewers and listeners. We'll be back next week with a stimulating conversation with a candidate for governor of Wisconsin.